the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, as we prepare for July 4th, how can we have patriotism without nationalism? And then Scott McKnight asked, what would a world without email look like? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this hump day, this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, We are glad to have you with us. Aubrey, how are we today? How are things? You know, some days are awesome. Some (laughs) days are not. And that's how I'm going to answer that question. Things are things. <laughs> things are things. Period. I, but I, I'm glad it's Wednesday and the weekend is, you can almost see the it's weekend. It's 4th of July. Sometimes I wish that people could, no, this would be really bad, actually. There was just a camera here. People could watch us off the air. We're just <laughs> venting <laughs> about life. I don't need that. Just about life. So it's yeah. good. You know, it's good therapeutic. God is good even when it's life is messy. That's good. Well, that was very pastoral of you. Wasn't it? Speaking of life being messy, I, will, <laughs> I told you I wasn't sure I should share this today. Oh, uh, you're going to you're gonna share it. Okay. Yeah, because All right. sometimes this is a great metaphor of life. You ready, people? I'm going to give you a pastoral metaphor of life. I woke up this morning, took a shower. I was going to watch the Today Show. It's like my thing, you know, my girls, Hoda Kotb and uh, Savannah Guthrie. (laughs) I was going to watch the Today Show. Uh, I got downstairs. I stepped in something. I was like, what is that? Proceeded to realize that our dog uh, in the middle of the night came down and... uh, and uh, yeah, just had issues all over our, our What kind carpet. of issues did your dog have all over the carpet? issues that everyone is thinking about, <laughs> as I describe right now. That's disgusting. Wait, wait, wait. Here, I need the listeners to know what you did next. I woke my wife up. Did you hear that? <laughs> he didn't go get paper towels. He didn't go get spray for the carpet. He woke up his wife went, to deal with the dog's I, I went, mess. I went, woke my wife up and said, I don't really know what to do right now. And then she <laughs> smacked you across the face and said, you're a grown I'm man. Sure, Go I'm deal sure. with it. I suspect this will be a conversation <laughs> later tonight between her and I. But Good luck yes. with that, Brian. Now, in all honesty, I knew she was getting up within like the next five minutes. So I said, hey. And so you said, you still you you have to deal with the dog stuff because I don't want to. This is a metaphor of life. It is a (laughs) metaphor of marriage. It is all of it. Uh, But yes, I will own the fact that my first move was. And what did you say your husband would have done in that situation? The same thing. Like if my kids are vomiting or like when diapers were bad growing up, he'd be like, Aubrey, Aubrey. Like, yeah, yes. No, I'm sleeping. You, you're their parent, too. You got you have responsibility right. for this thing, too. There are. And I know this. Some husbands are going to get really mad by when <laughs> I say this. But there are certain things that, like, rise above the pay grade of the dad and go into mom zone. <laughs> <laughs> and that felt like one of them this morning. But I remember those days when you had babies and you'd be like, I'm like, Carrie. And she's like, why am I have to deal with it? I don't know. Feels My like a favorite mom was thing. like, the middle of the night, the kids would be crying. And Kevin just like poked me. <laughs> Aubrey, Aubrey, Aubrey. Like, yeah, you helped make these kids. I was not alone in this. <laughs> you helped make these kids. You wanted them as well. And so, yes, Good that's times. how this morning started. And that's how I think my mind goes to like, 
Should I use this on the radio and or for a sermon illustration? Because they work for both of them. The answer is yes. I'm sorry to be so graphic. It was the worst feeling and the worst way to wake up. Awful. You're looking around and go, well, because I'm not going to watch the Today Show. And now all of a sudden your mind's going, well, I got to leave at this time. Oh, so nasty. That's where we're both at this morning. That's what life is like. this afternoon. And, uh, here we go. But hey, it's a great show. We're actually excited to be together. We are. Coming up in a little bit, uh, we have the author of a book called Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. We're going to have that conversation. Excited to talk to her. Uh, but it's the 4th of July weekend, and that's coming up. It's barbecues. It's uh, my family's getting away. You said you guys are going to kind of unplug a yep. little bit. Yep. It is kind of um, the 4th of July weekend. Uh, I know Memorial Day is kind of the beginning of summer, but really 4th of July feels, feels very summer. Feels uh, yes, like the fireworks it. And, and the gatherings. And yes, especially it, after last summer when things were pared 100%. down. A hundred percent. And, and now, uh, you know, 4th of July also comes with... Um, just pride of country, right? Mm-hmm. It's our country's birthday. That's so right. I love, and I'm sad. I think Wheaton and other towns around us are doing it, but my town, Downers Grove, is not again having their parade this year. Oh, sad. Yeah. But I'm the one. I love the 4th of July mm-hmm. parade. I love a kind of Americana. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the hanging of the flags, all of it. I love it. Do you have a 4th of July shirt you wear? No. Should I? Yeah, we got to get, we, we got to get one of those for you, Brian. Like describe to me a Fourth of July shirt. Well, is it just the colors, example, or is it like wear, don't tread on me? I wear my Captain America shirt on the Fourth of really? July. Yes, obviously. So that's what you need some Americana I do not. I, wardrobe. I, I am all about Americana. Watching baseball, yeah. eating, a, like eating your apple Mets pie. Shirt could work that you have on right now because it's red and blue and white. Sure, yeah. sure. Uh, but all of it. But okay. here's the question that we do have to ask: What is the difference between patriotism and nationalism? Great that was question. written at Christianity Today this week, and. How can we as Christians, Aubrey, be patriotic while not being nationalistic Mm. and kind of all of our hope being in America? What is the difference for you? And uh, I I think these get lost sometimes. Sometimes I think when you're not nationalistic, people don't people think you're not patriotic. Right. So help people in your mind understand that difference. And maybe I, I wanted to start by just encouraging people. Uh, How do we get this right as we go into the 4th of July weekend? I feel like it's a posture and an attitude about allegiance, right? Mm. So where is our allegiance ultimately? You can love your nation. Mm -hmm. You can be proud of your nation. You can work. You can be angry at your nation, but love it so much. You want to change things about your nation. Mm -hmm. The same time. You, your allegiance, your loyalty, your worship belongs to Jesus Christ alone. And I feel like that's part of the difference, right? Is nationalism promotes the love of country to the point of worship or idolatry. But uh, patriotism has it in its proper place. God first, God above all else. And then... Be someone who loves the country enough to make the changes you want to see in it. Yeah, for me, patriotism is I love being in America. I love our country. I'm so thankful for what it represents. But I also know it's not perfect. Yeah. In the same way that let's let's make this connection the same way that my commitment to my marriage causes me to ask the hard questions and causes Carrie and I to do the work to make our marriage better. Good. So to be patriotic is also to look at our country and go, where do we have to get better? I I don't think it's being patriotic to say that our country's perfect and anything you ever say badly about it is this is unpatriotic. And I also think you bring up a very important point is as Christians, 
we are patriotic love of country, but that is, uh, sorry, no pun intended here, uh, our, our faith in Jesus and our allegiance to his kingdom trumps our allegiance to yes, our country. Like we it. have to get those in order. And when those aren't aligned, uh, we always choose God over country. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that Bonnie Christian said here at Christianity Today, she's she wrote an article called How to Have Patriotism Without Nationalism. She says this, we can enjoy fireworks. I do, she says. But our observation of July 4th, like our general practice of patriotism, should be characteristically Christian above all else. Our concern is not imitating Jefferson or Washington, mm-hmm. but Jesus. Absolutely. And so I think we get that wrong a lot of times nowadays. It's uh, it's to be truly patriotic is to is to stand up and, and you can't ever say anything wrong about the country. You must always know that's not what it is at all. In fact, uh, I would argue it's the opposite. It's to say, because I love my yes. country, I'm going to take a critical eye of it. The same way I say, because I love my church. I'm going to take a critical eye at it because yes. I love my marriage. We're going to do the hard work to look at it every now and then. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes, and, and I think it's really important, and we'll close it out this way. Fourth of July should also remind us that as much as I love America, my allegiance to Jesus is infinitely higher. Amen. And, and that, you know, America is not the same as the kingdom of God and that we're going to go. Uh, that that's where we're going to go. But go it's out good. and enjoy the parades this weekend. That's right. Uh, Americana, all of it. Wear shoot your off Captain the- America shirt. I do love that Americana is like, shoot off fireworks. Shoot off fireworks. <laughs> and eat hot dogs. I feel like that's Americana right there. Hot I dogs, do. fireworks. I Maybe base. Do. You throw baseball in there, too. Baseball. And then I'll, I'll finish it off with some apple pie. And uh, that will be That'd good. Be a great well, day. Uh, coming up next, Scott McKnight wrote uh, about this. A world without email. Imagine that. When I saw that headline, I'm like, oh, I want that. I want that for my Myself. We're going to look at what McKnight talks about here, a world without email, coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, so glad to have you with us today. Aubrey, I have a question for you. Okay, I'm ready. Hit me. So, uh, like the rest of us in this world, uh, much of our lives are driven by email, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, everything that kind of gets in front of us on our phone, on our yes. computers. Here is the question for you. If you woke up tomorrow and uh, and you had not no emails, but didn't even have email at all. Oh, like it didn't exist. Would that like freak you out? <laughs> or would it be like, oh. Such a breath of fresh air. Yeah. I, I mean, I think initially I, it would definitely freak me out. Uh, simultaneously, even you saying that, I'm like, oh, would that be great not to have things to respond <laughs> yes. to, not to have to delete things from my junk mail and unsubscribe to things I don't even know why I subscribe to yes. it. And it, yes, ultimately very refreshing. What do you think, Brian? It would be, uh, I think it's exactly how you described it. It would be simultaneously terrifying <laughs> and freeing. Yeah. Because email is the worst in the sense of, it's just it just uh, you you answer one and then they answer and then it can, yeah like yeah. literally email goes away when you don't answer it right but then you're <laughs> right. just it sits there it's the worst feeling when email just sits there and you're like I know I need to it answer is that a terrible but I don't. feeling and then you like star it to remind you but it just sits there starred forever oh, it's the worst. yeah so when I was on sabbatical two summers ago three summers ago 2018 so three summers ago yeah I made it a point to spend almost the entire summer 
with uh, on my phone, if I clicked on email, it said no mail. And it was <gasps> the greatest Come feeling. On. Well, but here's what I learned. A, you could there's so much of your email you could just delete. So I'd get up That's in the morning true. and like delete, true. delete, delete, yep. delete. But then here's what's going on. Not only did people know that I wasn't working, but the second you stop sending emails, they stop sending emails. You stop getting emails. Yeah, that's good. I'd go a week looking at my phone, and sometimes I would just hit my email button just so I could see it say no mail. It just felt so freeing. Like it ah. was. Are you one of those people who just collects emails so that if I looked at the app on your phone, it says like fifteen thousand emails, no. or do you just try to get them out? I try to get them out very consistently because it drives me crazy. Mm-hmm. I try to delete trash. I try to unsubscribe, and then. And then respond quickly so I can just get things done. I don't think I've ever had zero, though. But my husband will keep them and keep them and keep them and keep them and keep them. In fact, one time years ago, he paid someone to go through his email and just clean it out. Respond, delete, note what needed to be responded to. (laughs) That's awesome. And he got down to like five emails through that. But it was just like a one-time project, like. Get deal with my email. But no, he just he lets things sit. I think part of it is he's he like all of us over inundated by emails. Yeah. And so it gets to the point for him where he's like, this is too much. I, can't, I don't even know where to begin. And so he just doesn't do it at there all. There are times where you and I are talking where I think we're married to the same person. Really? Is Carrie <laughs> like that too? It, only when it comes to email. She will. I once told her, I said, I think you should put like a a response, like an automated response that just says, I'm really bad at checking email or responding to email. <laughs> I may not get back to you. My sister-in-law used to have a voice uh, message that you'd call her phone and she'd say, hey, I'm probably not going to listen to your message and I'm probably not going to call you back. <laughs> Thanks. Awesome. And that was it. And she was just like, no, really, I'm not, I'll, I'll just let him know. That is awesome. Well, Scott McKnight at his uh, kind of his blog, he is talking about a book by Cal Newport, a book called A World Without Email. And this book, he says, contends that the digital revolution, so email, direct messages, text messages, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, has created, quote, the hyperactive hive mind Hmm. that demolishes downtime needed for concentration and focus and creative work, stirs up the demand to stay conversant with the hive mind conversations, and causes constant checking of email. That is a lot and guilty as charged when I read that, right? So he goes on to ask a very important question, one that I want to pose to you. What do you do to minimize the interference of digital communications that lead to the overactive hive mind? So it kind of keeps you on the shallow, keeps you constantly connected to to other people, kind of uh, the tyranny of the urgent, all of that stuff. Are there things that you either do or wish you did? So I won't make you feel guilty. So maybe you're like, man, I really wish I did this. Mm -hmm. Are there things that you do or wish you did to, is in his words, minimize the interference of digital communications that lead to this hive mind? So there are lots I wish I did, and I'll talk about those. One thing I do every once in a while, and usually it's in the summer, so I actually should be thinking about now, is I do take a sabbatical from just... Not my phone. I'll make phone calls and text Mm -hmm. messages to friends, but all social media. I'll put an out of office thing on email and just like give my soul and my mind a break. Mm. Um, And that's always so refreshing. Like I never regret that. Um, What I wish that I did. And I've, I've been thinking about this lately, but I haven't actually done anything about it. So maybe this is a good reminder. I wish I put sort of time boundaries around it. So Mm. I can check my XYZ at this point during the day, and that's it. Then my phone is aside, my whatever is aside, so that I'm present with the people I'm around, so I'm being creative, I'm thinking strategically about things. You know, that's, I don't do it. 
I want to do it. That's right. I'll let you know if I get there. So I missed what you said. I was just checking my email over here. But <laughs> there's a couple that I, uh, this has more to do with what I wish I did. Okay. Um, I actually was just thinking yesterday about getting Facebook and Twitter off my phone. Mm-hmm. So still checking on my, so not getting off You're the You're checking it on your computer. Because I have to be in front of my computer. Yeah. I will check yeah. it. Uh, whereas the phone gets me all the time. I right. just constantly just hit it. It's the almost mindless. You just hit it and yep. It's not even almost mindless. It I just, mindless. I hit it and I'll be like, why did yeah. I just get on Twitter? But yeah. now you're on. Yeah. Uh, I also have high respect for people who say, I'm going to check my email for these 30 minutes at the beginning of the day. Mm-hmm. I'm going to check it after lunch and mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And they have the ability. Not I'm the person who always has it up. Oh, and so okay. I see one pop up. Boom. Check it. And, okay. And that really takes your mind away. I think what McKnight's yeah. talking about here that is really important is, and you're a writer. I wonder how you do this. Like it takes you away from depth of thinking. It definitely does. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, email, text. It constantly gets you into the tyranny of the urgent uh, versus the depth of like being able to think like I really the thing that undermines my sermon prep is exactly that. Like just, I'm just distractions from those distractions. Totally. And so I do. Do you find like what do you do when you're actually writing a book? I can't. I I literally have to put my phone in another room. Hmm. I have to turn off notifications on my computer and be in the space where I'm only writing the book and doing nothing else. This is actually part of why I started doing sabbaticals in the summer from social media, because I had the last few books I've been writing have been in the summer and I've needed to just be able Mm. to have creativity, spend time reading and researching and focus on that project alone. But it's, it takes so much intention or else I'm the same way. I'm like, Oh, I'm distracted. Let me, and then you just can't, you can't accomplish anything. Yeah. It's so true. And I, I really beat myself up over it and then find myself doing it again. Like it's just, there is kind of, you know, okay, but what's the alternative? So I've heard people, a lot of people say we need less meetings. We just need to be on email. That's easier. That's more efficient. Get Mm -hmm. it done. But so what's the alternative? Like you have to be able to communicate about certain things. I just think for me, it's exactly what we've been talking about. It's prioritizing when you do it. I just, I don't think, I don't actually want to live in a world without email. I actually don't want to live in a world without Twitter or Facebook. I just can be, I can be too dominated by it at times and can be too uh, just, without thinking, getting on it. So I wonder how other people feel out there. Someday I want to have a conversation with you about how do you actually go about writing a book? Oh, that's a fun one. Like, are you talking like you sit 10 hour days typing or you just kind of hit or miss? I wonder. Well, we'll talk about it later. I spend 10 hour days typing, but that's just my style. Okay. Okay. How long does it take from the old saying goes soup to nuts from the beginning to the end, right? How long does it take (laughs) for you? It's like a long meal. It begins with soup. And I don't know why. This is a whole conversation. It takes a very, 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 very long time. Okay. Months and months. But then you make all of your fortune. Like then you're, the then you're, that's it. <laughs> yep. It's all worth it. We'll talk about that, especially around when your new book comes out, I which like comes it. out September 7th. September it's called 7th. Known, K-N-O-W-N, How Believing Who God Says You Are Changes Everything, available now for pre-order wherever you buy your books. Good. I look forward to the autographed copy. That, uh, Maybe. That we'll we'll see if I can get you one of those. <laughs> Maybe. Coming up next, we're talking to an author uh, by the name, name of Megan Chance. Her new book is called Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. We're going to talk to her about what does it look like uh, to even reclaim something like feminism for the Christian faith. And uh, we're excited to talk to Megan next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. 
Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by the author of a new book called Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. That author's name uh, is Megan Chance. Megan, how are you doing today? I am doing great, and you pronounced my last name perfectly. Yay! Got it. Good, good. Well, Megan, before we jump into the book, and again, congratulations on this book that just came out, could you introduce yourself a little more to our audience so they can get to know you? Yeah, sure. My name is Megan. Um, I am a blogger, podcaster, author. You know, I just became an author, so not soon to be anymore. (laughs) Um, You mentioned my book. Um, I am a former missionary that worked with sexually exploited women for about four or five years, and through working with them, discovered that I was complicit in their oppression, Hmm. and that a lot of their oppression was actually due to these patriarchal gender roles. Um, So I'm sure we'll get a little bit into that, but that realization changed everything for me, Hmm. and it was one of the big reasons I decided to reclaim my voice, because I didn't want to be complicit in a system that harmed women Hmm. anymore. Love that, Megan. Um, So let's talk a little bit about that. Can you tell us some of the experiences that led you to write Women Rising? Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's really so much to say that I'm going to try to do as quick as I can. (laughs) Um, But as I said previously, I was a missionary and I worked with not just sexually exploited women who had been sex trafficked, but I've also encountered um, women who were survivors of FGM, female genital Mm -hmm. mutilation, um, widows, um, just women across the, the world who had been treated poorly due to their sex. And for a long time, I didn't understand what was driving this. Like, I was often partnering with ministries that would help these women, which was so good and so noble. But what I found is that these women were so quickly replaced. So we Mm -hmm. might be able to help one woman, but in the next breath, there'd be another woman that is being harmed. Mm -hmm. And whether that was in the sex trade or a woman um, experiencing, or I should say a girl, experiencing uh, female genital cutting or female genital mutilation, this was something that we couldn't fight. um, By just helping, we really needed to address the demand. And Mm -hmm. so after... About four years of doing this work, I had this encounter. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a longer story than I have to tell for um, nine minutes. But um, I was in this, this bar um, where women were trafficked. Um, it was in the Philippines, and, mm. and Western men came over. And um, long story short, this man tried to talk by this woman that I was talking to, and was, I was partnering with a ministry that helped these women by providing them a full college education and providing for the dependents, and it was just an incredible organization. Wow. And as I was talking to her, these men wanted to buy her, and mm. she said no, and I said no, and they started grabbing her, <gasps> and we didn't know what to do, and so I just quickly bought her. Um, mm. and wow. what else to do, and then um, these men still tried to take her and actually walked out the bar with her, and so I got in a fight with the bar managers, arguing about whose property she was, which is just a completely crazy argument to have. Um, The whole bar is looking at us. Um, Me and my friend eventually win our argument, but these men who were just drunk before, like I said, there were six of them, were now really, really angry and Mm. drunk, and in their anger, they just pulled another women off the stage and um, I remember her looking back at us as she was walking away with them with just 
terror in her eyes. Wow. And I felt like I made the situation worse because now these men were not just drunk, but they were angry and drunk. And I remember that was the night that I was like, we have to address the demand because in such, you know, I fought so hard to help this one yeah. woman, but she was so quickly replaced. And then in a way that I felt like I had made the situation worse. Mm. And so it was the next night on outreach where um, I was talking to other women and these American men called us over and they asked us what we were doing and we told them and we asked them the same question. Why are you here? Yeah. And this man who had a young girl under his arm went on this really long monologue about how women here were raised by and they knew how to respect men mm. the way they deserved to be respected. Mm. And he went on and on and on about how women didn't know their place and women weren't submissive enough in the United States, so he came here to get that respect. Wow. Hmm. And as he was speaking... It just sounded really familiar to me. <laughs> and that's yeah. when it hit me that these were the gender role teachings I had grown up with my whole life. And I was about to get married. I was three weeks um, to getting married myself. And people were recommending the book Love and Respect to me. Yeah. And specifically, it literally says in that book that men deserve respect without condition. Right. And this is literally the same thing I'm hearing from a man who is buying a trafficked mm. woman. And it was like the, it became crystal clear to me in that moment um, what the problem was. It was this idea that men were entitled to women's bodies, yeah. entitled to yeah. their submission. Um, and what we really needed to fight was this idea of entitlement. But unfortunately, I had come from a safe context that taught that. And I realized I was being complicit in that system. Mm, and that was wow. the point of no return. And that's when I decided to write a book. I quit my job. Mm. I wrote a book. I started a podcast. Wow. And it's been an incredibly bumpy I bet it has, <laughs> Megan. <laughs> um, but I so feel like this is what God has has called me to do, yeah. and I'm going to be bold and continuing to follow that calling. Good for uh, you. Thanks for sharing your story. Megan, part of uh, one of the things that you hope in this book, it says, is you just want readers to understand human trafficking. and. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's a phrase we hear a lot, especially, you know, th- and how bad it is and, and the prevalence worldwide. But but a lot of us here just don't even really understand it. Can you help? Uh, those stories are really powerful that you told. But could you just yeah. help people understand worldwide and also hear uh, how big of an issue this really is? Yeah. So trafficking is going to look so different depending on where you are in the world and also what's being trafficked, right? So sometimes there's forced labor trafficking. There's an an incredible organization called International Justice Mission. Um, I'm a volunteer with them. I've been working with them for many years, and they're going to give you so much more information, but I'll do a shallow dive right now. Okay. Mm -hmm. Basically, basically, there's there's a lot of, of, of forms of trafficking. There is forced labor, there's brick homes, there's factory workers. Yeah. In fact, recently, a couple of years ago, we found out that a lot of the fish that we were getting from Thailand in stores such as um, Walmart were actually from trafficked fishermen. Wow. So work. And so there is, there is connections, and I don't think we often make those connections. And since... Um, IJM and other organizations got involved. It is no longer, you know, we're no longer working with that supplier because we did traffic people. But there's, you know, there's forced labor trafficking. Um, In the United States, there's also forced labor trafficking. Oftentimes, immigrants are vulnerable. And we often hear stories of people who are, you know, told to work in a home 
um, and then they're not allowed to leave, mm-hmm. and then there's a lot of manipulation because they'll get reported to immigration services, and so that's another form of trafficking. Mm-hmm. And of course, there is sex trafficking, which is now there's also a, not a new form of sex trafficking called cyber sex trafficking, right. which is happening and becoming far more prevalent. But tra- sex trafficking is still looks different depending where you are in the world. Um, I work specifically with women in Southeast Asia, so Thailand and the Philippines and in India. And the way it looked even from India to Southeast Asia was vastly different. Mm. Um, where it wasn't, where I was in um, India, it was these women were actually taken from their home to Nepal. So they're being trafficked across the border and, and uh, they would take children. Um, and in Southeast Asia, that happens as well. But more often what you're hearing is the story of a woman who has um, no other options. We're, we're getting these massive, massive storms that are coming and wiping off um, you know, these, these farms. These massive typhoons will come and wipe mm-hmm. out these farms. And these impoverished farmers will send their oldest children to the city to get money. Mm-hmm. But without a formal education, they're easy prey to traffickers. And yeah. often that's how I heard that story again and again and again. Um, that a lot of these women are coming as a result of their family farms being wiped out and them looking for a way to survive. Wow. Um, here in the United States, the most often for you here is 60 to 80% of, of uh, girls who are trafficked in the sex trade um, come from our foster care system. So mm. there's um, also something called um, ACE scores, so adverse childhood events that will make someone more vulnerable to traffickers. So it's childhood trauma that traffickers are recognizing. And so what they do is they pretend to be a boyfriend Mm. or this figure that really cares about them. They shower them a gift. And then they slowly um, take away, uh, you know, uh, their their, their relationships they do have, their passport, their Mm -hmm. IDs. And then they force them into the sex trade. Wow. And so it's going to look different depending on where you are. What we see a lot more often here in the United States is there's rarely a case of kidnapping. It's more often the case of traffickers looking for vulnerable children. Yeah. Um, but if you go overseas, you might, a lot of these stories, they're also vulnerable people, but you might actually have um, traffickers who will kidnap mm. um, oh. or or often what they will do is they go to impoverished families, for example, in Nepal, and they say, hey, give, give us your kids, and we'll, um, we'll give them a better opportunity, and we'll send money back home. Mm-hmm. What happens is they're sold into either sex slavery or into these brick homes or other factory work um, where they have no rights. And so you'll also see um, International Justice Mission doing a lot of work. Yeah. And in these areas, there's, there's a, it's not just sex trafficking. There's also a lot of labor trafficking as well. Wow. Megan, that's super helpful. Again, the uh, she is the author of a new book called Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. Uh, Megan is also the host of the Faith and Feminism podcast. We'd encourage you to get that. You can also learn much more about Megan at Megan Chance. That's, let me spell that last name, T-S-C-H-A-N-Z. <laughs> Gotta spell Megan, that one. <laughs> MeganChance.com. And you can also follow Megan on Twitter at Megan Chance. That's at Megan Chance. You can also learn more about, she mentioned the International Justice Mission at IJM.org. Megan, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the book. It is really great to meet you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, so every now and then on Twitter, we just find things on Twitter, and we're going to do this later with a Tim Keller tweet. Uh, but I found one from a guy by the name of Matt Smethurst. I think I got his name correct. Uh, he is the managing editor of the Gospel Coalition, also the author of a couple books. Uh, but he quoted Paul David Tripp. So Paul David Tripp is someone you and I were talking about the other day we from were. episode one uh, of the Mars Hill podcast. Yes. I'm a big Paul David Tripp fan. He wrote He's a, a big great marriage parenting yes, he, guru, right? He wrote, I thought, a really good book on parenting because a lot of times you can read parenting books and be like, all right, I'm not sure that I agree with this or that this you broke any new ground. He, he, I thought if you go, if you're looking for a parenting book, look up Paul David Tripp on parenting. I think it's a really helpful book. And so, uh, Matt Smithhurst here is quoting Paul David gotcha. Tripp. And when I read this this morning, I was like, Man, what he writes here is is foundational to our faith. Hmm. And that I think if if we as Christians could kind of internalize this and grasp this, I think it changes everything. Yeah. And so let me read this and then I would like you, uh, Aubrey, to respond to this. I like I said you, Aubrey, as if there's somebody else in the studio <laughs> you, right Aubrey. here. You, audience, you, Aubrey. Here we go. Paul David Tripp wrote this. You will either receive your identity vertically or shop for it horizontally. Wow. Let me read that one more time. You will either receive your identity vertically or shop for it horizontally. All right, I want you to unpack that a little bit. What is Paul David Tripp saying there? Mm -hmm. And why is this an important concept? I mean, he's obviously talking about receiving our identity from aliens vertically. <laughs> okay, no. <laughs> All right. No, we've seriously. We've lost you for the day. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think this is exactly, this is the foundation of our faith, right? That we receive our identity from God. Mm -hmm. We are who God says we are. That's actually what my next book is about. Oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Or we end up uh, shopping. I like that it's shopping because we do end up trying to consume our identity from either other people, from products, from, uh, you know, anything, right? Mm -hmm. We know this from the approval of others, from certain item that we feel like will make us finally feel whatever achievements that we feel like will make us feel approved of. Like we, we just constantly. And then I think the reality is we shop around, right? Mm -hmm. We, we look to so many things to define us, whether it's a group of people that finally help us feel like we belong, um, whether it's a place that feels like it's mm -hmm. fulfilling our heart's needs. Ultimately, what we know is none of those things will satisfy that our heart's rest is found. Our identity, our true identity is found in God alone. Mm -hmm. But we have to remind ourselves of this all the time. Yeah. So I, I actually saw this quote and loved it and forgot that that's what your new book is about. So let's let's go there. When people out there go, well, what is my identity in Christ? Like, what is my vertical yeah. identity? Because I do think when we don't understand what our vertical identity is, then the answer becomes to shop for it horizontally. Yeah. So how would you unpack or describe that vertical um, uh, identity that we have? Yeah, I, I think I would start. By saying this, there's a lot of Christians out there who thinks God hates them. Mm. There's a lot of Christians out there who don't know that God is good. And there's a lot of Christians out there who think they are worms, terrible. Mm. I'm so terrible. I'm the most awful person ever. And the reality is from 
Genesis 1, God has declared you very good. Mm. Like God created humanity out of his love, from his love. And I think we have to remember that our first, our primary foundational identity before the world was even created was, is an identity of love, Mm. period. Loved. We are loved by God, period. Absolutely. Now, what we know is that we are are all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. That does not change God's love for us. In fact, because God loved us so much, he came to earth as a child in order to redeem our broken identities Mm. and to remind us who we really are, that foundational identity that we are God's beloved. And so the fact that God, I mean, I love the the picture of Jesus' baptism when Jesus is baptized, you hear the Father's voice, you, you see the image of the Holy Spirit, and God the Father says over Jesus, Uh, you know, you are my beloved son. And that's the identity that God is speaking over all of his children. Beloved son, beloved daughter, in Jesus, you are no longer a slave to these Mm -hmm, things. You mm -hmm, shop for your identity. mm -hmm. Instead, you are a son and a daughter of the most high king. And there's all kinds of other things that come with that, right? Like you have an inheritance. You have a future. God has goodness for you. Um, I mean, there's a lot in our identity, but I think we have to start with that belovedness yeah. in order to really walk out of who we are. That's so good. And I just finished this past weekend preaching through the book of Galatians. Oh, and nice. That is such at the heart of the book of Galatians, right? Because you've got the Judaizers who are trying to say, hey, Jesus allows you Gentile to become a Jewish uh, follower, a Jewish person. And, and Paul's point over and over again is that it's exactly that. No, in Christ, you are God's children. And that changes everything. That's right. This idea of that you're a child of God, uh, like you said, fully loved, fully accepted. Like oh, I do like that you brought that up because so many of us just have this picture of our Heavenly Father as like, you are one step from me just smiting you. Totally. Me, I, I don't like you, but I will I will tolerate I'll you. I'll tolerate you, yeah. Uh, and that, that has ramifications. And so this idea that our identity given to us by God in Christ just defines everything. That's why I think this is so helpful from Trip, from Paul David Tripp, because otherwise you go out looking for it, right? Yes. I'm going to look for it in the approval of others. I'm going to look for it in whatever else. And all of those, like you said, are not just like uh, ins- insufficient, uh, but they can be very dangerous. Yeah, that's they right. They can be very dangerous. So I, very helpful uh, tweet here. You will either receive your identity vertically or shop for it horizontally. If you want to know more about this, go pre-order Aubrey's book. That's right. Uh, That will be good. Coming up next, what's it look like to tame the tongue? How do we use our words wisely? We're going to have that conversation next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, how do we use our words wisely? And where do we find our self-worth? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Wednesday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Sampson, and I am joined by my fabulous co-host, oh, Brian Fromm. You. you got a Met shirt on today. I'm ready to roll. They You're won ready. yesterday. <gasps> they so. won yesterday. Uh, you know, I, I did not. I was going to... Uh, Twitter uh, tweet tweet Twitter. to uh, Kate Shelmut after our conversation yesterday because her She's beloved Braves Atlanta fan. Braves. And, yep. You know, the Mets can lose the rest of the series, but they won last night. So you I, probably should I, have. Yeah. You don't need to rub it in, though. We want her back on the show. So, we want her to remain a friend of the show. That's true. We do like Kate Shelmut, yes, we so do. you don't need to ruin things for us. Okay, Brian. I'm ready. Now, this news is about a year ago. 
from about a year ago, but I think it is really worth talking about. I'm going to play you uh, some audio of a Fox News correspondent who um, really vents about Jimmy Kimmel, the late night host, Mm -hmm. taking some time off to tend to his family because some things happen in the middle of it I think are really interesting and kind of a cautionary tale for all of us. So let's go ahead and listen to that, and I would love to know what you think. Um, Jimmy Kimmel, he said the reason he isn't doing his show is he wants to like spend more time with his family, with his kids, right? As a childless metropolitan woman in her 30s, I can't stand why having kids is always the only reason where you can get out of whatever you want and people can't say anything. They're all, you know, gang, oh, well, the kids, well, the kids, I can't have the kids, the kids, the kids. You know, like, I got to give my cat heart medicine every night, all right? That's pretty hard. Sometimes kids need medicine, but it's a lot more difficult to hold down a cat than a kid. Babies don't have claws, and if they do, you should see a priest. Yep. Cat, just I just want to remind you that Jimmy Kimmel's has a son with a very serious heart condition. Oh, I didn't know that. I don't know if you knew. Yeah, yeah I know you didn't know that, <laughs> but I just wanted to get that in there. So now you can say, nah. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so that is Kat Fisk, I think is her last name, and she is really, Jimmy Kimmel had to take some time away from uh, his late night talk show because his son is very, very ill. I'm not sure what the state of his son's health is now. but It's at the, good. Oh, it's good. It's okay. Good. Yes. So at the time, he was really struggling with some very serious heart issues, and there were times on Jimmy Kimmel, uh, you, you know, can look at this on YouTube, where he was getting very emotional mm-hmm. about his son. Mm-hmm. Really hard for any parent to watch their son go through a hard time especially related to health. And so Jimmy Kimmel stepped away for a time, and she is really saying, why do parents use family as an excuse for things? That's not really the point. The point is that then she's interrupted by the guy who's hosting the show, and he says to her, hey, do you know that Jimmy Kimmel's (laughs) son has a very serious heart condition? And the funny part is she had just been talking about her cat having a heart condition. And you can see her go, oh, like she realized she put her tongue she, her foot she her mouth. put yep. her foot in her mouth. Thank you. She eventually issued an apology. Again, this was a year ago, but it's making a lot of um, it, like hits on Twitter right now. For some reason, it's trending again. And I think it's a really interesting conversation about the way we mm-hmm. use our words, especially as Christians. So what did you think when you heard that, Brian? It's cringeworthy because yes. you just are hearing it and you're like, oh, my gosh, uh, do you not know? Oh, oh, stop. And, you know. I, I think she deserved all the pushback. We've yeah. all kind of been there where, but part of being like an analyst like that, like on Fox News or MSNBC or whatever, is like you just have to just keep talking about stuff you don't know. Like I think part of the issue here is we we are so fast to talk. We yeah. just talk and yeah. talk and talk yeah. and talk. And we've done it on this show where we say stuff where you later go, oh, oh, I wish I would totally have said that. Totally got that wrong. Or, totally. And yes. so I have a little bit of sympathy, although just being downright mean and flippant about like, oh, my cat has this, you know, like, okay. It, like, but, but I think it becomes a lesson in uh, sarcasm. Great point. Uh, about yep. like, hey, when you're being sarcastic, even about a quote unquote famous person, that can go badly for mm-hmm. you. So I can tend to be a very sarcastic person. Yeah. And uh, sometimes being a pastor and being sarcastic don't mix well together. Right, right. <laughs> That's true. Why, it's hard to read why, tone. Explain that, yeah. It's hard to read tone or you joke about the wrong thing or to mm-hmm. the wrong person or about the wrong person. Yeah. And it gets back to that. Like, yeah. Where it was no mean intention. Like, I don't think this lady went onto the air going, 
You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to really insult Jimmy Kimmel today. Right, there's no way. Uh, she just talked without thinking about it, ultimately. Hopefully. And, and so sarca- I think there is a lesson here about sarcasm. Uh, and there's also just a lesson here about thinking before you speak, right? Like, there's a Bible lesson here, right? The book of James talks about what our words can do, right. that they can set a fire, right. that they can control the ship, right? Our tongue controls the ship of everywhere that we go. And so many of us, I think the lesson here is you just can't be flippant about your words, That's whether it. it be sarcasm, whether it be anger, mm-hmm. whether it be gossip, mm-hmm. like that's a big one the Bible talks about a lot that yes. a lot of us don't like to talk about. Right. That, but the whole idea of gossiping, uh, that that really we we don't probably talk enough about the the danger in our words uh, to the level that the Bible talks about it. And so, yeah, this is a, a funny, almost not funny, but just kind of a off there example. Yeah, right. But all of us have been there, and and Aubrey, I guess I would say that I get concerned that those of us in the church, probably those Christ followers, probably need to have a lot higher bar for our words Mm. than we probably actually often do. I also think it's our words online, right? And we've talked about this on The Common Good a lot, that it's so easy when you're just on your phone or on your computer screen to say things flippantly without thinking you get emotional and so you put something out there or you respond to something that you're really mad about. And I think there's some, this is a cautionary tale even for that. Like, let's tweet wisely. Let's use Facebook wisely. Let's email wisely. Let's uh, in public conversation wisely. And then the way we talk about other people or tear other people down um, that's, I think, a really important lesson. I know for me, too, I can also be cynical, especially especially about things that feel unjust, like mm. like corruption and power, right? And, and those things are good to call out. Mm-hmm. Um, it is good to have righteous anger. There has to be wisdom in the way in which we call things out and the way in which we talk about mm. people especially and sometimes that's a that's a hard line because you don't want to be si- like there's a scale of like silence to violence you don't want to be silent but how do we offer to god and surrender to god the way we speak about people and things yeah i i think it's, it comes back to you have to think before you speak mm. um you know you talked about what could get you in trouble talking for me honestly uh I can get in trouble by talking about people with other people. Yeah. And yeah. not really thinking about it. Like not doing it like, hey, did you hear about? Right. But just saying this and then all of a sudden walking away from the conversation going, well, that's just left me in some danger. Like that could get bad. You know? <laughs> yeah, and just, definitely. I just, you got to think before you speak. You got to think before, you know, you know who you talk to or what you're talking about. But mm-hmm. I guess let's ask a more foundational question, Aubrey. Why do you think the Bible, why do you think the book of James spends so much time talking about the danger of our words? Because some people might be like, you know, sticks and stones who may cares? break my bones, but you yeah. know, names will never hurt me. Why do you think the Bible spends so much time and raising the bar so high to our words? Yeah, I, I'm actually, I have James 3 open here where he says, With a tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Mm. And I think ultimately that's what maybe we're not realizing, that um, when we when we do curse other human beings, speak poorly about other human beings, that we're actually insulting 
God. Mm. Because if, if human beings have been made in the image of God, if they carry the Imago Dei wherever they go, then when we speak against them, we're speaking against God's goodness in them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, it's an affront to God. And I think sometimes that's what we, we can remove the person from the image of God that's in them and in that way dehumanize that's them. Good. And so it's, it's really a conversation about honoring and humanizing the other person. And I guess I would like to close it this way. Think before you speak. There you go. About people, about things, with your opinion. I think yeah. now speaking also under that umbrella is social media and other stuff. Like you don't have to have an opinion about everything that's and verbalize so it. There's the old saying, right? Either your pastor probably said it to you or your mom probably said it to you or whatever. God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, like right. just be That's wise. Good. And even if it's for selfish reasons, knowing that your words, if you're not wise with them, will get you in trouble. Mm. And, and so just be wise. The old, it's, it's a basic saying. Think before you speak. And I think we'd all be better off for it. And I would just suggest if you're a Christ follower out there, I would say the bar is higher for you. Yep, that's and, exactly and right. And we just need to own that to, and go read the book of James if you question that. That's good. Good word from Pastor Brian on the Common Good right now. Hey, stick around. We're going to be talking about where we get our source of self-esteem and how do we respond when people threaten our self-image. You're listening to the Common Good. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson. Joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm. Hope you're having a fabulous Wednesday afternoon, hump day afternoon. Hope you're making some great Fourth of July plans for the weekend. Brian, you found something interesting on Twitter about self-esteem, about self-worth, and about when people threaten that. And I would love to just hand things over to you. Yeah, and it is really well put. I would also say it's just about who wrote it <laughs> for me. <laughs> the brilliant Tim Keller this wrote Tim it. Keller. Yep. Tim Keller is the founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Uh, he has since handed that over. If, you, if you're especially in the church planting world, I'm sure you feel this way. Uh, I went here. I'll put it this way. I went to a conference once, exponential conference, and they had Tim Ke- Tim Keller speak, and they referred to him as Yoda. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's exactly right. That's and he Tim just Keller. sat on a stool and just talked, and he is full of wisdom. And an interesting turn that has happened is Tim Keller has become pretty um, active on Twitter. And mm-hmm. you, I, if you had told me five years ago. Uh, make a list of the Christian pastors and authors who are going to be active on Twitter. I think Tim Keller would not have made my top Definitely five. Definitely not. You picture him sort of in the library studying, All not time, on social right? media right? with 450,000 followers. I do yeah. like what he writes in his Twitter bio. He said, my son posts here on my behalf as well. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. Okay. Nice. Uh, I would assume that his son gets his okay from his dad to be okay, dad, this is coming from you, you know, because... Uh, you don't want Keller to have to write later. Well, that was my son. Sorry, that was my that son. Was my son <laughs> yeah. so. Didn't mean that. My if kid did that. Tim Keller is a prolific writer. If you've never read any of his books, I would just Google Tim Keller. And after you buy Aubrey's books, I would go get Tim That's Keller's right. books. Buy mine first before exactly. Tim Keller's books, obviously. And, uh, and it would be good. He wrote this. Uh, if your race and culture or your moral performance or your politics or anything but the love of God is a foundational source of your self-worth. When people threaten that positive self-image, you will not be able to listen to them. You will strike at them. Uh, and so I read this. Aubrey, this ties into the Paul David Tripp tweet mm-hmm. that we read in the first uh, hour. Maybe I'm just needing to hear these things in my own life mm. right now about where is your identity come from? Where yeah. does your self-worth yeah. come from? Because Keller takes it a further step than what Tripp did. And he says... If it's these things other than the love of God, 
Like yeah. if the love of God is not your foundational source, if what we talked about in hour one, uh, who God calls you, what your identity is in Christ, if that's not your foundation, if that's not where everything else grows out of, but if it is instead your race, your culture, your moral performance, your politics, and then he gives the caveat or anything else, anything but the love of God, then not only are you going to struggle because mm-hmm. you're going to you're going to, though, if those things are your ultimate worth, then Aubrey, if like, let's say your ultimate worth is found in uh, in your church that you pastor. Yeah, yeah. And I go to your church one day and I critique it. I right. just say, hey, Aubrey, really enjoyed it. But what's going on here? What's mm-hmm. going on here? That is no longer helpful critique for you. That is instead um, that that is instead uh, now a shot at your identity, right? Your right, worth, right? I think Keller's onto something as to where this. Um, you know, over the past year, we've talked about how politics is no longer about you and I disagreeing about something, but is about now you're my enemy. If, yeah. if I'm a Republican and you're a Democrat. I can't be like, yeah, but we're still good. But if I see you as a child of God and I'm a child of God in Christ, and if you're a Democrat, I'm a Republican, we can argue. Yeah. We can debate. Yeah. But then we can go, all right, I'm glad we're on the same team. Yeah, like, shake you know, hands separate. and respect each other. If I'm primarily defined by my politics, say, mm-hmm. as an example, then if you're different from me on my politics, then you are. you and I are foundationally at odds with each other. Right. And now I can doubt yours, your worth. Yeah. And that goes back to how our politics have become about uh, good and evil, yeah. right and wrong. Right. Uh, and so I think Keller is saying something really, really important here. Where do you find your worth? Because if you find it in the wrong place and somebody critiques that place, and they might not even be doing it on purpose, knowing that you you own it this mm-hmm, deeply, mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to really struggle with that, and you're going to lash out in some in some probably surprising ways. What I appreciate about Keller is he's oh, he always seems to have his finger on culture's pulse yes. really well. Like he's a very good exegeter of culture, and this is American culture right now. That, that we do identify, we do put our yes. source of our self-worth in our race, in our culture, in our performance, in our politics, in all kinds of things. We do that, period. And that is part of why it feels like there's so much division and anger and vitriol online where we're all fighting with each other because our identities are in the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Now, of course you care about your race. Of course you care right. about your culture. Of course you care about your moral performance and your politics. Those things matter, but at the end of the day, like you said, Brian, our, our rootedness, our identity has got to be defined by the love of God. Right. And therefore, our foundation is so solid, that's so right. strong, that if anyone attacks those other things about us, we're like, yeah, I mean, that's annoying, but I'm fine because I know who I am mm. before the Father. And th- this, I mean, this is interesting because I think sometimes we can... We can look at the arguments that are having on, people are having online and we can blame this side or that side mm-hmm, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's actually going, no, 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 no. Like the heart of these arguments That's is right. something else. The heart of this striking, this lashing out is that our identities are in the wrong place. Yes, absolutely. And, I, and let's I'll help people understand where this plays out for pastors who get this wrong. Uh, when you. Uh, when when my church is growing numerically, mm-hmm. if my self-worth is tied up into my church primarily, yeah. then guess what? I'm going to feel really good about myself <laughs> right, and who I right. am as a person. 
But what the second my church starts declining mm-hmm. numerically, it's going to not just be, hey, what's going on with the church? Let's try to figure this out. It's going to be crushing to my soul. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when person X leaves my church and says, hey, it's not even if they were like nice about it. Right. It's not a, it's not you. It's me. Right. You know, this crushing to yes. my soul. Yes. But when that new visitor comes, I'm the greatest pastor yeah. ever. Look at me. And what becomes difficult is that roller coaster. It's why parents, uh, parents, it's why pastors flame out. One reason, because yeah. you just, that roller, and I'm guilty as charged. Right. I ride that roller right. coaster. Uh, but now maybe you're not a pastor, but insert anything in there. Yeah. The behavior of my children, uh, the, the size of my bank account, yes. the, um, you know, my position at my office, whatever else it might be, or it's just political. My, my, Favorite political party wins the office versus mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. Whatever else it might be, when I put my identity and my worth in things that weren't supposed to hold that, at the very best, I'm going to ride a roller coaster that's going to be difficult. And at worst, it's just going to crumble. And, and yeah. I'm going to see everybody who disagrees with me then as my enemy. That's why this is so important. Man, we've done this twice today. Our identity in Christ. I think we needed this word, Brian. I think so, because it's our identity in Christ that determines everything, not just where I'm going after I die, mm. but how I can live my life now. This is so foundational, and, and I would I would encourage people to think about it because we get it wrong so often. So, okay, Brian, with another like 30 seconds that we have here, for anyone who's listening right now and they're just hurting, like they're, maybe mm. their identity is in the wrong places, they recognize it, but they don't know what to do. Do you have any sort of pastoral encouragement for them? Yes, I will tell them. Uh, I would say this to them. Uh, that you in Christ are a child of God. And, and I would take time today. Maybe you're a journaler. Take a journal with you. Maybe you're just a person who walks. And they take time to actually think about that phrase. What does it mean that I'm a child of God? Not just, oh, I'm a child of God and move on to your next thing, but kind of like sit in it for mm-hmm. a little bit. And, and maybe prayerfully repent of the places where I'm not living out in that right. identity. Uh, because I think that just understanding that becomes the core. It's it's the fertile soil that everything else grows out of. And yep. so um, I understand. I would also tell people I understand it. Like, I yeah. get it. I yeah. get trying to find your self-worth and what people think of you or what this happens or how this is going. But, man, it really can crumble. It can really be dangerous. Yeah, good. such a good word. Well, stick around. When we come back, Brian and I are going to be talking about episode two of our new favorite podcast, The Rise and Hill of Mars Hill that Christianity Today has been producing. Lots of interesting things to discuss there that aren't really just about the podcast itself, but right. are about the church at large. So you are not going to want to miss that. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm, on this Wednesday afternoon. And we are so glad that you have stuck around so that we can talk about our favorite new podcast with you. That is The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And, uh, Brian, one thing we love about this podcast is, although it is chronicling uh, this massive church that Mark Driscoll planted and ran for a number of years and sort of the downfall, it's it's uh, taking a magnifying glass on the evangelical church at large. Mm-hmm. One of the things that it does is really chronicling the history of how we got to where we are now in church, specifically how Mars Hill came to be. And we wanted to play a quick clip from That's some of the... say. Quick, quick clip. clip. Quick clip. That's good. Yeah. Quick clip. Okay. Yeah, thank you. We're going to play a quick clip for you <laughs> from episode two, which was just released yesterday. Yesterday. 
If you want to understand how we got the modern phenomenon of really big churches, the first character in our story is someone who seems to have tapped into a number of cultural currents earlier than anyone else. He was a young pastor in the Reformed Church of America, serving in Illinois, when in 1955 he received a call to plant a church in Garden Grove, California. That pastor was Robert Schuller, and his approach to church planting would, even by today's standards, raise an eyebrow. I started because we didn't have property. I went to the Orange Tribe the other preached from the rooftop. Unchurched people came safely in their cars. Had uh, 50 cars the first Sunday, and here, 53 years later, we have a nice church. Okay, so I think that's fascinating. Mike Cosper, who is producing and sort of leading the podcast, he talks about Robert Schuler, who was a very early church planter. He had this very well known for being like a drive through church. People literally pulled their cars and go to church. He brings it all the way through Bill Hybels and Rick Warren to some of the modern day mega churches. Now, fascinating. Listen, what yes. did you think about this episode? I thought exactly what you said. It was fascinating to go to walk through Schuler to Chuck Smith to Bill Hybels to Rick Warren. It was a really good history lesson on the modern day um, mega church. How did because this wasn't a phenomenon? There were big churches, but the mega church movement was not a phenomenon. And I thought Mike Cosper and the people at CT did a wonderful job at helping us grasp. They're not just go. The whole point of the podcast is not just to go. What happened to Mars Hill? Right. But it's to ask. Mars Hill is more the fruit of what they're saying is other stuff that happened in evangelicalism. Yeah. And I really appreciate the history of this one. I, a lot of it I didn't know. And the pragmatism and the um, the, bib- the uh, business principles that mm-hmm. were used. And I thought one of the most powerful things they said in it was a lot of the um, megachurch movement had to do with just the birth of suburbs. And this idea of the big, uh, the big sort, and and now people like Hybels and Warren and others knew exactly what their target audience was. Yes. I mean, they talked in the in the podcast about when Hybels planted uh, Willow out here. That simultaneously, not because of the church, but at that time, uh, the suburb of Palatine grew by like three hundred percent. So there was it wasn't just about these churches growing; it's that they kind of tapped into this suburb. The is, momentum of the suburb growing, and it was a suburban church. So, yeah. how does suburban lifestyle work? People weren't just going to their community church, but they might drive past five churches to go to the big church. Mm-hmm. And so, I've really found this fascinating because then they talked about what that next generation, the Mark Driscolls and others, what they were fighting against. And you started hearing stuff from the leadership network, from the emergent church, yes. kind of the stuff that we all knew about in the mid nineties. And and you start hearing like old school Driscoll talking about, I mean, there was even one clip that was amazing where he basically called trying to grow your church. Um, uh, not a sin necessarily, but wrong, wrong. Right? He said, I'm trying to start an unseeker, Church. Yes, I don't want a seeker-friendly church, he said. And yeah. then he ends up trying to grow his church, and he's currently in a church where they're doing all sorts of... It's wild to yeah. think about. Uh, but I do think it's really helpful to go, sure, I believe in some mega churches that it's just a work of the Holy Spirit, that God is doing work. Yes. But I don't think that you could just say, every big church, God has done this. There was there was strategy, there was vision, there was stuff from the business world, and yes. there was a lot of unhealthiness that kind of grew all this. And so I thought this history lesson 
uh, in episode two here of this podcast was super, super important because you go, okay, uh, Mars Hill or Willow Creek or Saddleback is not just its just own uh, its own entity in a bubble here. It didn't just kind of happen. It didn't happen out of nowhere. It was kind of the next kind of yeah. logical step. And then it's going to cause us to ask the question, okay, what are the next steps? What are the next iterations? Sort of movement in churches. Does the, does the megachurch go away? Yeah. Or what does the new megachurch look like? Yeah. I found this. Uh, I couldn't stop listening to this one. I started listening to it. And it's so well done. And we're hopefully going to have Mike Cosper on again here in the yeah. next couple of weeks. But uh, it was really well done. Really fascinating. So I think, Brian, I don't mean to keep putting you on the spot here, but... For people who are hearing us talk about women, we are excited about this podcast, especially as church leaders. I think for us, it's fascinating just to learn from other churches. And because you and I were sort of in the day and age when Driscoll was rising Mm -hmm. to fame, we were starting our ministry journey. Like, that's so interesting for us. But I know there are some listeners that are like, who cares? Why is there a whole podcast about this? Why do you guys keep talking about? Why do you think this matters for Christians to uh, hear about? Oh, I think there's so many reasons. One is... Uh, in our modern day um, mega church kind of um, culture that we have grown here in evangelicalism, I do think that you could get into this weird step of big churches are are what God wants and what mm. they are doing it right. God is blessing them. And there might be some truth to that with some of them. Uh, but what we've seen is in a lot of these big churches, uh, it's focused on a um, a charismatic leader, think yep. Mark yep. Driscoll, think Bill Hybels, yep. uh, under which whom the church kind of crumbled because it, it wasn't done with character. There was there was a character deficiency. And uh, we keep hearing these stories, but I think this podcast becomes a real touch point here because they're going to try to help us understand what it is. Because to be honest with you, those of us who have started churches or been in churches, especially mm-hmm. here in the Chicagoland yeah. in the last 20 years, you know what our greatest influence was? Willow Creek. <laughs> it was. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. We all went to the conferences. And that's okay. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But we went, teach me. What is this? You know what? In other places, for people uh, who planted churches, it was Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill. Yeah. This isn't, these aren't these churches, or we've got all these purpose-driven churches underneath Rick Warren, yep. Saddleback. These yep. aren't. Uh, like we just said, their own entities that don't have an effect. They've birthed churches and movements. Yeah. And in many ways, when you unpack, when you do the autopsy on these big movements that happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you go, oh, that's littered throughout yes. uh, Western evangelicalism. And yes. that's what this whole podcast is about. It's not in the end, it's not about Mars Hill. Right. This is a podcast about the American church. And yeah. that's why it's important because we love the church. Yeah. We absolutely. want the church to be everything it's meant to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, that's why I think this podcast is important. I also think that it, it we, we've said this before, but it causes us as contributors to church, as part of the church, and even, even though we don't want to admit it, consumers of church that's and right. church culture. It causes us to look at ourselves and say, um, I think positively, how do we go forward for the church mm-hmm. and make the church the beautiful bride? Oh, not, we can't make it. How do we ask God right. and how do we be faithful to serve God so that the church is as beautiful as God wants the church, his church to be? And simultaneously, I think we have to really critique ourselves and say, how have we allowed narcissistic, abusive leaders to be in power and to grow their churches. What does that say about what we want? 
And can we shift the paradigm for what it means to be a really good pastor and to be part of a really good church? I think these are really important conversations for us to be asking right now. Uh, This we've talked about for all of the, especially in the Chicagoland area, all of these corrupt pastors, uh, corrupt ministry leaders like Ravi Zacharias. We have to be asking. This is a come to Jesus moment. That's right. And we have to be humbly before the Lord, looking at ourselves accurately and asking God to make a change so that his church can be the beautiful bride that it is meant to be. That's right. So we'll keep breaking down episodes with you. We're going to try to get Mike Cosper on the show to talk about his perspective on why he's doing this and We love it. We would encourage you to go listen to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. You can find it wherever you find your podcast, and uh, it's available from Christianity Today as well. Stick around. We're going to end our show today by talking about encouragement in seasons of loneliness. This is one for parents who have lonely kids. This is one for adults who Mm -hmm. are feeling lonely. We want to give you some words of encouragement. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on Wednesday evening. Hopefully you're driving home and you've got some fun plans tonight. Brian, you got anything going on? I don't, which makes me very happy. I told you oh, that you before. Said that. I yes. said uh, the nights where I don't have meetings or I don't have things, I'm like, yes, let's let's do nothing. Maybe we'll continue our WandaVision. WandaVision. I was hoping you might uh, come today with a little more WandaVision uh, knowledge. No, nope, we did not watch any more last the night. night. Good for you. I actually said to my kids last night, wait, we should watch one more before bed. And they got all excited. And then I realized the Mets game was on and late. Oh, and I said, Never sorry. Mind. Mets are on. Mets, Mets, Trump. Wanda That's great. vision that is in correct. the front house. Welcome to my home. We wanted to end our time together on this Wednesday afternoon by giving you a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of sad news, but a little bit of positive uh, application, right. practical advice as well. As we all know, coming out of the pandemic, many of us are dealing with loneliness. Even though the world is opening up again, there still seems to be a sense of isolation and loneliness for a lot of people. But what research researchers are showing is that a lot of this loneliness, a lot of this isolation, a lot of this even depression and anxiety is rearing its ugly head in our children. Mm -hmm. In fact, the New York Times says that mental health crisis is flaring among young children. They share the story of an 11-year-old Marie calling the suicide prevention hotline in October She'd been bottling up feelings of loneliness and sadness for months mm. without telling anyone. And I think more and more Brian and I are reading and hearing stories of kids that are struggling with loneliness and isolation. And of course, um, we don't want to miss that as parents. We don't want to miss it, especially if it's in our own kids. Yeah. But um, just in general, for our the sake of our nation's mental health, we want to be mindful of the next generation and what they've just been through. And so... Um, we found an interesting article that's actually from fatherly.com. It's mm-hmm. an older article that was written in the middle of the pandemic, but it talks about what some things parents can do when our kids feel lonely. And um, you can find that at fatherly.com. And um, I, I think, Brian, you know, this is not just a conversation about parents helping lonely children, although we don't want to miss that. This is a conversation, I think, for anyone dealing with loneliness. Again, the name of the article is 10 Ways Parents Can Help a Lonely Child Right Now on fatherly.com. You can go ahead and uh, grab that article if you want to. But, Brian, 
this has a list of 10 things mm-hmm. that parents can do for lonely children. 10 things I think that any of us can do for one another right. who are lonely. Pick out a couple and tell me some of the things that stood out to you. Yeah, I like this one in the list. It says keep or add structure, routine, and tradition. So again, this is kind of thinking we're coming out of COVID. Some of you out there might be going, wait, we're coming out of a pandemic. What are people? Lo-? Yeah. Thing, uh Things happen over the span of 16 months where everything's changed. It, to think that we're just going to go back to normal is just false. Like, it's there, yeah. it's a new normal. And especially for our children uh, who much don't have the coping mechanisms for what we just went through. And, you know, uh, a lot of us adults don't have it, but right, the kids especially. Right. So I love this one. Keep our ad structure, routine, and traditions. Because here's the deal. I know in my own household, when we just tell our kids, do whatever you want. They end up not knowing what to do. Yeah, that's you true. You want some days, I get it, of unstructured, just go play. Yeah. And that's what most of our days end up being. But but also for our, us adults, the, the thing that structure and routine and traditions causes, it, it makes you kind of keep going. Yeah, Like, okay, all right, structure, here's what we're doing tonight. Here's where we're going. Mm-hmm. And, and your kid, you know, when they're lonely, they might just want to be like, I'm just going to sit in my room on my phone yeah. or do this. But this kind of forces us to say, nope, nope, we're going about, we're doing this. Or even pre-pandemic, you remember what we did every, you know, Friday uh, July, night yeah, or whatever. July yeah. 4th or whatever mm-hmm. else. We're going to do that again. And that I think does two things. One, it gets the family going and moving and, and, and doing something. But two, it reminds us of how stuff was pre-pandemic, that things haven't changed completely, right? Like, okay, we yeah. do this as a yeah. family, and we're going to keep doing it. Yeah, that's good. Uh, it says regular schedules create structure and safety for kids. And so I think a lot of times we think it's the lack of structure. that That's, that's what it means to be a kid, right? How many of yeah. us go, well, when I was a kid, we just went outside and we threw rocks, <laughs> right, right? And right. we did this. <laughs> I get we it. We kicked the can in the street. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But what? But I think that one's helpful. Any one yeah. of these stand out to you? Uh, you know, the, there was one that says prompt kids to talk about their feelings gently. And again, this is a, a, applicable for kids and adults. Gently encourage your child to talk about their feelings, gets them into the habit of putting their emotions into words and allows them to be heard. Here's an example. They say you could say to your kids, hey, I was thinking it's been a long time since you've been with your friends. I wish we could go to their house and that may open up the conversation mm-hmm. to allow kids to talk about, yes, I, I miss my friends. Yes, I'm lonely. Or even, yes, I'm afraid to be around my friends again after the pandemic. And the important thing this article says is to let kids know that it's okay to have the feelings that they have. Remind them that they're loved and supported no matter what they might be feeling. So that one stood out to me. I think the other one that stood out to me was normalizing loneliness. I think mm-hmm. this is important for all of us right now. It is important for our kids and for us to understand that we are not alone in missing the way life used to be or missing our friends, missing things we used to be able to do before the pandemic. And like Brian said, the world is opening up again, but some of these feelings of loneliness and isolation are still lingering. And so to normalize that, generally speaking, the entire population mm-hmm. is feeling Sad, anxious, lonely, depressed, confused, and even mixed emotions. Some people are feeling excited and ready for the world to open up again. That is all okay right. and normal after this international trauma we have all been through. Yeah, and I would I would end it with this too. As parents, like just be in your kids' lives. There you go. Hey, let's go out and throw a ball. Hey, let's go for a walk. Hey, how are you doing today? I get that we have busy lives. Things are opening up again. We got stuff to do. But 
ultimately, uh, you as a parent, your role is to just be in your kids' lives, love them, yeah. uh, encourage them, yeah. but just spend time with them. Good, and so right? often it's quantity over quality. Like just mm. be with your kids and that will make all the difference in the world. Yeah, that's so good. And we also just want to remind you, if you're feeling lonely, reach out to somebody, maybe your pastor, maybe your neighbor, maybe your friend, let them know. And if you want more information, you can again go to this article on fatherly.com, how parents can help a lonely child right now. Well, we hope you have an amazing Wednesday evening. We hope you come back and join us on Thursday from 4 to 6 p.m. We have a great show planned for you. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.